Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Wander with Andrew Wilcox. I'm your host. Name is in the title. Um, anyway, uh, thanks for joining me. I'm so excited about this uh, episode. I was so nervous about doing it. Um, this guy is another podcast house, which is probably what made me more nervous than his incredible education uh, because I wanted to make sure I was a good interviewer to him. I hope I did a good job think I did okay. But anyway, uh, Michael Inslicht. He is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He is a very funny guy, a very interesting man, and he has his own podcast. He hosts a podcast called Two Psychologists for Beers uh, with another co-host. And it's really funny. It's really funny. It's really interesting. So if you like this one, I highly recommend that you listen to that one. Today's episode, all about self-control. And I think I'm going to give this episode probably the longest title I've used so far. And it's going to be called, All in All, We're All Our Lack of Self-Control, I think. We'll see. Well, we'll see what, we, uh, what I actually write uh, on the internet to compel people who don't. Uh, know me to listen to this episode. Um, but it's all about self-control and how tough self-control is and how we can try to use self-regulation to do that. I, I don't know. You got to listen to the episode. Yeah. Self-control is something for me that's always been a thing. Um, but I, I left the, the podcast hopeful, even though there's not a definitive solution for creating self-control at this time. Yeah. So here he is. Without further ado, Michael Inslicht. Welcome to Wander with Andrew Wilcox. Yes, yeah, so uh, I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. I've been here, this is my 14th year, I believe. Uh, so I'm a social psychologist, but also a neuroscientist. So um, I go by the term social neuroscientists. So I study um, regular behavior, but I study at the level of behavior, uh, the level of cognitive processes, and critically, I also study at the level of uh, the human brain. So that would be kind of a, my, my job title. And uh, I mean, I can get into more detail if you want, but that's kind of the, the, the main job that's title. long and short of it, yeah. Um, and two of your big... Um areas of study have seems to me have been one of them being self-control and the other being looking at the processes that science uses is am i right to say that uh well i would say i mean i think i do i do have two uh you know i've had two clear areas and uh and then i maybe supplemented it with a, maybe like a uh, meta content area, if you will. So mm -hmm. my two content areas, as are, as you mentioned, uh, self control is a big one, especially in the past uh, ten or so years. Um, the first part of my career, however, I studied um, prejudice and discrimination, uh, specifically mm -hmm. from from the perspective of stigmatized people. So what is it like to belong to a group that is uh, stigmatized in the eyes of the broader society, and how might that impact people's, for example, academic performance or academic striving? So those are really the the, the, moon, the two main things I've been uh, really focusing on. And then the other thing you mentioned is really kind of more of a meta concern, and that is just my concern for meta science. So 
how, you know, the science of science and um, have we as a field, and, and I'm talking specifically about psychology here, have we as a field made mistakes? Uh, and how, and if so, how do we catch these mistakes and how do we improve upon our mistakes, making sure that we don't make those same mistakes next time? Uh, so I'm really, you know, concerned about, you know, the replicability of psychological science. I'm concerned about that. And just to touch on that for a second, because we're talking about it before we get into the self-control stuff, is that a tough conversation to have when people seem recently to want to question science a lot? Uh, it's a tough question. I mean, it, it's been an, an extremely uh, acrimonious time in psychology mm -hmm. um, and maybe in uh, other areas of uh, academia. So I, I suspect you, you see glimpses of this in economics, in cancer biology, in cancer medicine, um, neuroscience. Uh, yeah, there's this kind of this zeitgeist now where we're kind of like introspecting and examining some of our assumptions uh, or inferential tools. And you use the word uncomfortable. It is deeply uncomfortable and unsettling because what it means is that some of the things that I learned myself as an undergraduate, uh, some of the things I learned uh, in textbooks, some of the things that I've taught, mm -hmm. we now know are probably wrong. Um, and uh, it's, it's one thing to, to, to stay at the level of ideas uh, and say, oh, that idea might not be right or we got to refine our ideas. But what often ends up happening is that we also – because. These are scholars and researchers who derive these ideas. The people who derive these ideas get start identifying with the idea. So if you mm -hmm. criticize an idea, by extension, you're criticizing a person, another scholar. And well, as you can imagine, people don't like being criticized. Yeah. Um, and people take you know take these criticisms very very personally. Now, science is supposed to be different than other arenas. It's not politics. It's not uh, religion. It's supposed to be kind of a clear-headed, rational pursuit of small t truth. And um, that requires uh, really digging deep and really, it, it requires self-criticism uh, or, you know, actually requires scientists to criticize other scientists. But what ends up happening is that, you know, scientists get upset about that and they start firing back. Uh, and uh, yeah, so we've been in a period, I would say, of five to seven years of, um, it slowed down a little bit in terms of the fighting, but there's been intense fighting for I would say four or five years now. Um, that's yeah, uncomfortable. Yeah, and it it seems as though then that seeps into the general public, and the general public seems to maybe, in my eyes, kind of lose connection to that. That is a tenant of science: is that science is supposed to be replicable. It's supposed to be tested. It's supposed to, that, that's what's supposed to make our ideas stronger. But people seem to, uh, I don't know, our faith in science doesn't seem to be as strong as it should be at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's I mean, it's understandable at some level, but it's also a, uh, it reflects a surface level understanding of what science is. Mm. Um, I think all of us have, uh, you know, it might be a human universal, perhaps, um, that we want, you know, neat, tidy answers to the questions that we ask. Um, we want definite answers. Um, and science can't provide that necessarily, at least, you know, in, you know, especially if we're, if we're dealing with a subject matter that is young, uh, that is not mature. So psychology has been around for 100 plus yeah. years, not very long. Um, there's still so much more that we, that, that we need to know. And um, so, of course, we're going to make mistakes. Of course, we're going to have false starts. And, but like you said, you know, what differentiates science as a way of knowing from other ways of knowing is that 
um, it's self-correcting. Now, it might take decades for a science or an area to self-correct, but it eventually will get to the truth. But it can only get there uh, by, again, by self-reflection, by introspection, and by criticism. But what that means is that sometimes we just are like, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Mm -hmm. This is my best guess right now. Um, and that's the best we can do. And I think for the lay public, you know, you have to be comfortable with that, knowing that the scientific method is, is actually, the scientific method is terrible. It's so error prone. It's lots of bad things, but you know what? It's better than any other method that we have. Um, so it might not be perfect. It might even be bad, but it's better than any other way of knowing because it's self-correcting. So we have to let science self-correct. And that means sometimes, um, some of the you know flashy headlines you read in newspaper articles, they might be wrong. So a, a great example of this, uh, you know, not in psychology, uh, is nutrition. Um, oh, yeah. It seems like my entire life I've been given advice about what to eat, what not to eat, and every 10 or 15 years, it seems like the field is radically changing their minds. So when I grew up, it was all about um, low-fat diets, low-fat yeah. this, low-fat that. You know, there'll be uh, low-fat versions or no-fat versions of all different kinds of foods. And now it seems like some nutrition experts are saying, no, 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 we, we're wrong about the fat part. It's actually sugars that are the evil. Um, fats are okay. So, it, you know, it, you know, as a, as a consumer of nutrition science, you're like, I don't know what to do. But, you know, if nutrition scientists are using the proper inferential tools, eventually they're going to, they're going to figure it out. Um, the problem is, I, and I don't know nutrition science enough, I suspect the inferential tools they've been using have been, they've been abusing it. Yeah. And maybe they need to have their own replication crisis, their own kind of crisis of conscience to understand how to make their science better. And I, again, I don't want to, you know, throw stones because mm -hmm. I live in a glass house. Um, well, and so, the sugar uh, and the yeah. diet stuff to me, my question always in those type of ones is who's funding the study? where's the money coming from? You know, what's the goal of those studies? And that's my worry is that there might not be enough transparency in those studies when it, uh, when they come out. Like, I don't think people dig deep enough into that to, to try to understand it. Yeah. That's an interesting, uh, uh, I guess, element that might be less present in psychology. So mm -hmm. I think with you know something like nutrition science, yeah, there's like huge multi-billion dollar companies who are in ton, you know, they, they, they have huge invested interest in their, whatever their product is being seen as safe and healthy. Um, so yeah, you're gonna have, you know, the, the food lobby is going to be, um, in a way shaping and pushing the science and suppressing some science. So I think nutrition science in some ways has a, a tougher job, but there are no doubt lots of nutrition scientists who are not, uh, you know, being paid by big food companies mm -hmm. and they want to get to the bottom and they want to get, you know, ferret out truth. And, um, you know, those are the people who should be trusting. So, uh, you know, I'm sure there are enough nutrition scientists who don't have a conflict of interest and, and that's the science we should be paying attention to. Um, psychology, I think there's less, uh, you know, vested interest There's lots of these big corporations who've got to want to sell something. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not absent. There are conflicts of interest, but I think it's less present. Um, well, speaking of psychology, let's get right down to self-control because this is what I'm really interested in, in learning a little bit more about, uh, because I'm a human being that has almost, uh, has very little self-control. And I always wonder too, if, if people believe they have more self-control than they do, would you say that's a, a, a something that's true? Um, you know, I don't know specifically the answer to that question about self-control per se. 
Um, but it is true that uh, we don't always have a, a great sense of where we stand in all different kinds of dimensions. Um, so as far back as Freud, probably even further back, we've known that, you know, there's only a small part of um, – of our lives that are available to, to our conscious mm -hmm. reflection. And that includes reflecting on our own character traits. Um, so there's no doubt there are going to be some people who think they are really, really good at self-control but fail miserably when they're put to a test. And conversely, there are going to be some people who are like, no, I'm not really that good at self-control. But yet when they're, you know, uh, when a plate of hot, you know, delicious cookies is put in front of them, they're like, oh, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm okay. I don't need that. I don't need those right now. Or, you know, it's, it's, it was Halloween last night. So I was, as I was trick-or-treating with my kids, I, was, I hate so much candy. Um, you know, and some, some people uh, are totally fine with that. And, and whether they're, they're Self-knowledge might not reflect it. Now, it's true that self-knowledge, self-report is uh, is fallible, right? Mm -hmm. So not everyone has, uh, you know, really good a handle on, on, on their traits. But it, it's actually remarkable at how consistent, on average at least, people's own self-reports are of various skills, including self-control, uh, correspond with how other people would judge them. Okay. Now, really? That's not true for every every single person, but on mm -hmm. aggregate, self-report is actually pretty good. Um, and in fact, um, it's so good, in fact, that like uh, uh, some of the best studies, I would argue, that we have about self-control, and by, by best studies, I mean those studies that tell us, you know, really reveal the power of self-control are based on people's self-reports. And those studies are, are you know, take – you know, uh, a couple of shapes, but but oftentimes it's like you ask people uh, about their levels of self-control, and then you examine various aspects of their lives that reflect healthy or unhealthy functioning. And it turns out that people who report having high self-control end up, uh, for example, having more satisfying relationships, less likely to be divorced, uh, more likely to uh, have a healthy weight. Uh, more likely to exercise, less likely to have uh, various kinds of medical conditions, um, more likely to live longer, um, less likely to be in prison, uh, more likely to have more money in the bank. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It's, um, you know, uh, I've said this a few times, you know, if you've got children, and of course we all, parents always want the best for their children, um, if you want to, you know, endow them with, 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 you know, the best possible life, you, you, you could, the, the, the two best things you could ask, you know, hope for them is that they're smart, so have high IQ, and that they are conscientious or, or have high self-control. If they have those two things, I mean, very likely on average, they're going to live uh, quite good lives. So is there a way an individual can improve their self-control? That is an amazing question uh, and a really, really important one. And unfortunately, I don't have any good answers. Um, this, in a way, is a, is a holy grail mm -hmm. of self-control research. It's how do we – we know it's important, right? Let's start the trait level. So people who are dispositionally high in self-control, again, they, they live the good life. Yeah. You name it, they have it. I, you know, so much so that some people have claimed that they don't know of any negative sides to having self-control. I think that's an overstatement. I think there are some negative sides. Um, uh, so I think, for example, uh, people might persevere sometimes when they when they ought to quit. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, you know, uh, they've got high self-control and they really, really want to be an actor, but they stink. Um, yeah. You know, having good self-control and persisting is not is not to their benefit. But that's a, you know maybe an exception. Um, so yeah, so given that it leads to the good life, how can we 
improve it? How can we get people to to increase that 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 really really important quality? Uh, and like I said, we don't we don't really have a good answer. Okay, now that doesn't mean people haven't you know generated answers, but unfortunately the data uh, have not supported each of these answers. So let me give you a flavor for for, for some of the answers. Um, really, there are it's really just one, uh, possibly mm-hmm. two, uh, but they're related really. Um, one is the notion that uh, if you practice self-control, you will uh, build up your so-called self-control muscle. Okay, so just like when you um, work out in a gym and, and, and lift weights, uh, you'll build up, let's say, your bicep muscle. Uh, and over time, you're, you'll notice your biceps getting larger and you'll be stronger and you'll be able to lift more and more weight successively um, over time. The idea here is that what if I practice self-control? What if I uh, deny myself the pleasure of chocolate, you know, for a week or two weeks or a month? Will I then become better at, uh, you know, not only not eating chocolate, but will I become better at my schoolwork, which also involves, you know, regulating my attention and my time and, you know, self-control? Um, will if I, you know, restrain myself again from eating chocolate, will I be able to quit smoking cigarettes, which I've been having a really hard time with? Um, so, and that was proposed by Roy, Baima- Roy Baumeister, a very famous, well-known social psychologist out of uh, Florida State. Actually, sorry, he was at Florida State University. He's now at the University of Queensland in, uh, in Australia. Um, and he, him and his, and his students tested these ideas out and they had some successes. So they had some, you know, some data suggesting that if you practice self-control for a week or two, you'll show some, um, some indices that your self-control has improved. But, you know, as more and more studies were run, more data was collected, um, it turns out that that is, you know, was probably a false positive. Uh, there's, it doesn't seem to be. Uh, any long-term benefits of practicing self-control, okay, in terms of building the self-control muscle. So if you deny yourself chocolate for a course of two weeks, guess what? You haven't eaten chocolate for two mm-hmm. weeks. And maybe you'll, it'll, maybe it'll be easier for you to, to deny yourself chocolate in a week or two following, right? Um, but even that, I'm not, you know, that wasn't actually tested, but I suspect that would be, that would be correct. Um, but in terms of it affecting your ability to quit smoking, nothing, uh, your ability to, 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 to maintain a, a good, let's say homework, a studying regimen, nothing. Um, so that, you know, that seems to have been a bit of a flop and there's an emerging consensus that practicing self-control probably doesn't increase the so-called self-control muscle. Um, so that's number one. Uh, number two and this is much more serious, and this is now like a, a multi-million dollar industry, um, there is something called brain training or cognitive mm-hmm. training. Yeah. And you might have seen some of these companies. Uh, this is a company called Lumosity yep. um, that actually was forced to uh, pay a fine uh, in the seven digits. I forget now what number was at the beginning of that seven-digit number, mm-hmm. but in the millions, uh, because uh, they were found guilty of false advertisement. Mm-hmm. Um, because essentially they, they claim to uh, reduce cognitive decline and to increase aspects of control, and they can't show that. But now let me just kind of tell you what brain training is. Brain training is essentially, or cognitive training is essentially, you give, it's typically older adults who, who maybe want to incru- uh, prevent cognitive decline or improve their ability to control uh, their behaviors. Um, they engage in brain training. So they do these, these kind of little games on their computer or on their smartphones 
um, for like maybe 20 minutes a day for many months even. And the, the creators of these, of the software claimed that it would increase cognitive ability more generally and maybe would in increase specifically as it relates to control is something called an inhibitory control. And this is like a fancy cognitive term for self-control, if you will, the ability to restrain dominant impulses. So by practicing little tasks, behavioral tasks over and over and over again, um, kind of like that practicing self-control idea, you might be building up this self-control muscle and then get better at it, better on it, not just on the task that you practiced on, but in other tasks as well. And Again, you know, thousands of people have run through this, and um, and the results are very straightforward. The results are if you practice these cognitive tasks, you get really good at those cognitive tasks. Okay, so there's one task called the Stroop task. That's a famous task in psychology where you see color words like red, yellow, green, orange, um, and they're printed or presented in colors that are incongruent with the semantic meaning of the mm -hmm. word or sometimes congruent. And it's tough to say red when it's printed in green. Yeah. Um, and just by a little, you know, a little bit of uh, math, you can figure out people's kind of scores on on, on you know their ability to restrain their impulses. Well, guess what? You practice the Stroop task for months. You get good at the Stroop task, but no one cares about doing well in the Stroop task. No one, even yeah. me. And I and I and I give my my, my participants in my lab Stroop task all the time. Um, I care about the Stroop task because I think it means something else. It might translate to something else. I hope people who practice the Stroop task for months and months might do better on tests in their school. Um, they might have better memory in their everyday lives. They might be better able to restrain their desire to eat fatty foods. Um, but none of that has been shown. All we know is that they show what's so-called near transfer. They get better at the Stroop task, but they don't show any generalized effect. So hmm. essentially, we don't know. We don't know how to improve self-control. Now, there, I have one idea. Uh, that I want to share with you, yes. uh, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Um, this is an idea that's not been tested. So <laughs> it's just an idea, and I've actually yeah. just proposed it to a, a granting agency here in Canada. Hopefully they will give me the money to do it. Yeah. Um, and the idea here is kind of like, it's kind of like a brain training uh, in a way, but it's it's not a practice-based uh, kind of training. It's more about rewarding certain kinds of things. Okay, so um, one thing we know from cognitive psychology is that people People don't like working. <laughs> People are inherently lazy. And that's true physically uh, and also mentally. So if I give you an option, I'm going to give you the same reward and you could either uh, walk one meter or walk one kilometer to get the same reward, which, you, which would you prefer? Uh, over and over again, people are going to pick the one meter over mm -hmm. the one kilometer. Um, uh, and the same thing with, okay, you have to do, you have to think about this thing really, really hard for a minute or think about it you know, not so hard for about 10 seconds, which do you prefer? Again, you prefer the, um, the easier one. So people are lazy. Um, however, people um, are willing to exert effort if they are rewarded for it. Mm -hmm. If they know there's a big reward at the end of the day, they're willing to work hard. So what we think we can do is reward people's hard work and get them into a lab and have them voluntarily choose to do something hard and reward them for that. And then what ends up happening is that the feeling of hard work, that those phenomenal feeling states, because they're always rewarded or consistently rewarded, they might you know, to use a technical term here, they might uh, take on a secondary reinforcer status. They might be, you know, inherently rewarding in and of itself. So when I work hard, I expect a reward to come. So just mm -hmm. like Pavlov's dogs, you know, when they heard a bell, they salivated. 
we want to train people such that when they work hard, when they exert themselves, they salivate metaphorically. Mm-hmm. They expect a reward. And we're now testing these ideas out or we're, going, we're hopefully, we're going to hope to test these ideas out in the next you know, few years. Uh, so maybe that is some way uh, by getting you know, people to find reward, uh, sorry, by finding effort rewarding, they might be more willing to engage it, including during, uh, you know, times when people need to control themselves. Is, is there any value in religious practices that try to teach self-control? Um, yeah, that's a really fascinating question. I, at first I was like, whoa, whoa, religion, where is this coming from? But, uh, but actually there is a lot of really interesting research on this very topic. Mm. Um, now I should kind of maybe uh, frame uh, my answer with um, an admission. Uh, so I'm an atheist. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I grew up Jewish. Uh, my parents are still very observant, but I consider myself a Jewish atheist. I'm culturally Jewish, but don't believe in God. Um, but yet I'm about to give, you know, heap a lot of praise on religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because it's been shown, um, at, you know, at a number of levels now, that religious people tend to uh, engage in behaviors that reflect more self control. So they're less likely to drink, they're less likely to gamble, they're less likely to have, they're more likely to to be healthy, to live longer lives. Um, And now some of this has to do specifically, you know, there are some religious scriptures that specifically, you know, instruct adherents to do certain things. So for example, in Islam, you're not supposed to drink. So it it would make lots of sense that Muslim people won't be drinking. Um, Premarital sex is generally a no-no in most religions. So you can imagine there'd be less of that. Um, But it turns out that uh, there might be other reasons why, uh, and and, uh, interesting reasons why religion might increase uh, people's uh, abilities to control themselves. And that is because uh, religions typically have a, a god, a godlike figure, a supernatural agent who knows all and sees all. Okay? Um, and if you have a supernatural agent that knows all and sees all, that being will know, for example, when you're quote unquote sinning. But Sinning could also, you know, it could be something, you know, that's in the Bible uh, or something, you know, but it could also be like, hey, I, I told myself I'm not going to eat that bad food. And if I do, like, not only do I know it, God knows it too. And God wants me to kind of, you know, be consistent with my goals. So that could be, you know, one way in which God could act as a scaffold to help you monitor your own behaviors. But with, with religion, you not only have a supernatural agent, you have a religious community other adherents, other co-religionists who you might see once a week or multiple times a week. And they might hold you to some of your goals too. Because you, in a way, you, especially if you speak about your goals to other people, they might hold you accountable as well. So yeah, there's, there's a pretty robust link between being religious and, and having a, a better self-control. And um, we're still kind of piecing out how that works, but uh, you know, uh, the connection is robust and it, it seems to make sense too. Yeah, and that's to me like as you said. I, I'm also an atheist. I would identify myself as an atheist. Uh, I don't have any children, but I always wonder, especially when it comes to children. Um, you know, we use characters like Santa Claus to do the same type of thing. You act better. You know, use self control. I was horrible. I always snuck in the closet and looked at my gifts before Christmas Day, and we knew where they were. My mom would hang that over our head and say, Well, you don't want to upset Santa, but you know where they are. You can look at them. I would look at them. But it's that type of act, 
used to hopefully improve our self-control, which completely failed with me, but worked very well with my sister who wouldn't go anywhere near it because she has for years always had better self-control. She would have Halloween candy for 12 months. I would have it for 12 hours. Um, you know, that type of a thing. And that's why I wonder if, if those types of things work or if they don't when it comes to instilling any self-control in children or if we just live in a marshmallow test world where if you would eat the marshmallow, you're just your self controls out for life. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good question. There's a lot, a lot in there. I, w- I would say, uh, you know, I mean, I think, I think religions work to the extent that you believe in the agent, right? Mm-hmm. So if you believe that Santa Claus is actually going to punish you or not, you know, cause you're naughty, then I suspect he wouldn't have necessarily checked. Um, so if you truly, truly believe, I suspect you're more likely to adhere to the, to the rules set out by that, you know, the religion, or in this case, you know, some mm-hmm. sort of, uh, you know, tradition, uh, of Santa Claus. Um, so, but, you know, but there are other, there are other things out there that help us, you know, stay controlled. So for example, um, we now live in a, you know, really secular society mm-hmm. and civil society has taken over a large part of what religion used to take. So, you know, we don't need God to, to help us uh, not murder and steal and uh, because we've got the police. We've got the judicial system. And if you do that, uh, there's a good chance or at least there's a chance that you'll get caught and, and might be in prison. So we stay good for those reasons. Um, we don't necessarily stay, need to stay good uh, you know, for God being there. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that works for like maybe the more mundane kinds of self-control things that we're talking about. Um, where the civil, you know, civil society doesn't care if you skip, you know, skimp on your diet, um, but perhaps your your religious community might, or your, you know, uh, to the extent. So, for example, you know, in in Judaism, there's strict, you know, dietary rules, um, and uh, I remember as a kid, I wouldn't want to admit to to, to people that I, you know, that I broke those rules, mm. and because I wouldn't want to admit it, I just I would I, I would abide by the rules, right? So it, it kind of kept me in check. Uh, at least, you know, in, in the regard of these these religious rules, and you can say that was that was a self control. Like, I mean, bacon. I oh, mean, bacon glorious. is friggin' delicious, and I didn't have bacon until I was like I think eighteen or nineteen. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. Oh, I, that's hard for me to believe. I had bacon every day of my life. It's, 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 <laughs> I missed out. It's I'm making up for lost time now, though. Uh, well, that's good. I'm glad to hear it. Um, would you say then social media? Is this a help in any way for self-control? Because now we have large groups and uh, essentially this unfortunate tribalism that's coming together. But we have like you, you don't get away with anything now. Like you can't get away with anything. Is this a, is this a positive then when it comes to helping with people's self-control? Or is, does it seem like the negative that it seems to be? Is it the negative that it seems to be? You know, that's a really interesting question. Um... I haven't thought about it in terms of self-control per se, um, but it seems like, uh, I mean, yeah, it's become, it's become hyper uh, politicized and polarizing. And it, yeah, it certainly seems that people jump on top of you, but it seems like only for certain kinds of excesses, right? So political excesses or perceived excesses, I mm-hmm. should say. Um, I'm not sure Twitter is going to jump all over you if you're like, oh, I ate the, you know, ate uh, some more poutine. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think other people might just applaud that as opposed to uh, uh, denigrate it. But I mean, uh, I, I think actually social media is the way I thought about social media in terms of self-control is more as a another thing that we need to control. 
Yeah. So, for example, I'm on I'm on social media quite a bit, uh, too much, mm. and I now need to engage in control to restrict my uh, my social media intake, and I find it incredibly difficult. Um, in fact, it's so difficult that I, I I install these apps on my phone and my my computers that lock me out of social media during hours where I want to be getting productive work done. Um, so I would say, if anything, it's it, it's a it's a net negative uh, for self control from my perspective. Yeah, I just wonder when it comes to like speech has been so like I I don't like it. I I find that we've gotten almost a little too intense but it seems like some people have decided that some things are just no longer part of conversation and anytime those types of things come into public conversation they're instantaneously squashed down uh and some of those things i do agree with absolutely there's certain conversations which i don't think it should be a debate anymore whether something is right or wrong and some i go well no maybe we do need to have more of a conversation about that but it seems now that social media has put a lot of people in that position of saying, and they see it as a negative, well, I would say this, but I can't because social media is going to get all over me. Is that a, is that a wholly bad thing over, overall? Is that a bad thing in all ways, or is there some positive to that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it actually relates to um, – so I've got, I've got my own podcast uh, yeah. uh, called Two Psychologists, Four Beers, and we discuss all different kinds of things, usually about psychology. Uh, and just – I believe it was our – yes, it was our last our episode that's going to air next week. Um, we talked about this issue uh, of moral outrage. Mm -hmm. Okay, And it seems like moral outrage is so finely displayed on social media, on Twitter, for example, um, where um, – you say something. Uh, so, for example, let, let, let's use an example. Uh, so, I found out how many months ago now, uh, quite a few, maybe it was over the summer. Um, there was this, you know, someone was, um, some teenage girl was wearing, I believe, a, she bought this beautiful uh, Chinese dress. And, she, and, and this woman is not Chinese herself. And uh, it was beautiful. It's a beautiful dress. And that you can buy in any, you know, a, a store in, in Chinatown. Um, here in Toronto and elsewhere, I'm sure. And most people, you know, uh, saw it as being positive. But but all of a sudden, a bunch of people were like, "How dare you? This is cultural appropriation. You know, you are white and you cannot wear uh, a Chinese dress. You're not allowed to. This is, you know, and now this is considered a big no-no." And for me, my from my political perspective, I'm 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 liberal, but I I find that to some extent. Um, uh, the left has gone too far yeah. in, in, in certain respects. And here's one example, this notion of cultural appropriation. I mean, this is sold by, you know, uh, shops all over China and all over, you know, Chinatowns in North America, for example, uh, openly. And people, you know, Chinese people want white people and non-Chinese people to wear these things. That's why they're yeah. selling them. Um, and most Chinese people responded very positively to this woman's dress. But now, but there was a huge backlash. I mean, this went viral, this, mm -hmm. the, the, this poor, you know, teenage girl's dress. And I, you know, you look at that, it's ridiculous. So it's like, okay, this is outrage now. Outrage on full display. Is that a good or a bad thing? I mean, from, from my perspective, in that example, that's a terrible thing. Um, you know, I, I personally don't, don't see anything wrong with it. And I think like it's, 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 you know, there might be some kernel of truth there. Like, okay, sure. We need to be respect of all cultures. Sure. Um, and, and let's be careful because sometimes there are there, there is instances where cultures steal from others and, and, and we need to maybe be aware of those kinds of things. But I think cultures are inherently malleable and flexible and um, cultures are dynamic and they're always changing. Um, 
So, you know, and and this is an example of maybe Western culture, white culture changing and incorporating all different kinds of elements. And I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. But now, is outrage always bad? Is it always a bad thing? Um, And uh, I don't think so either. I think, uh, I mean, I I typically respond to it as as a negative, but I think outrage, moral outrage, as expressed outline, it sometimes can uh, lend voice to marginalized voices, to mm-hmm. small voices, voices that are, that, that, are, that are stigmatized and marginalized, and it elevates it. And uh, it gives a voice to the voiceless. Um, and sometimes that's a good thing. Right? Sometimes we want the, the voices to be heard. Uh, it raises issues that we want to be aware of. Like, you know, there's not that many people in the world who, who experience this. Oh, well, it's not interesting that people, some people experience this in a different way, and can we accommodate them in any way? Um, the problem is that not all minority voices are worth elevation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, not all minority opinions are worth opinions elevation. Are There's lots of nasty minority voices. So, you know, um, Nazism, yeah. um, white supremacy. I want those voices to be stigmatized and not heard. And uh, outrage can elevate those kinds of voices too. Uh, so I, I think it can be a double-edged sword. But I, I mostly am annoyed by it, especially online. <laughs> yeah, Twitter to me has become a harder uh, place to stay for a long period of time for me i find twitter itself has just been uh tough to consume for long periods of time i end up leaving there rather angry than feeling like i learned something when i originally got on it i started following you know intelligent people in hopes of getting smarter and then after a while you just and the one thing that drives me the most crazy is when somebody says something incredibly unintelligent and then somebody very intelligent retweets that in order to take them down. But the original tweet had eight followers, and now all of a sudden that person's opinion is being seen by hundreds of thousands of people. And I'm going, well, there's a reason that person had eight followers, because clearly their view was a view that shouldn't be shared, and it usually falls somewhere in the white supremacist, ignorant type of a thing. And then just to take them down, you've elevated them all the way up. Uh, and I, that's where I love the level playing field that social media has brought in a lot of ways, but that's where the level playing field, I think, is kind of backfired. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And I... I, I um. You know, I think I would be worried if I was the uh, the head of Twitter and mm-hmm. Facebook, for that matter, because um, what you just what you just described this this notion of, you know, you first got on and you felt good about it, um, you're learning, and I should say your experience is you know is mirrored by my own. Mm-hmm. I, when I first got on, I was learning tons, uh, but now more or less I'm like it's either like stuff I already know, okay, been there, been there, been there, been there, or the stuff that's new is like garbage. Yeah. Um, so I find myself on there less and less, and I think that's a common experience, and I think people are leaving uh, those platforms more and more. Well, I um, think it's it's becoming what yeah people are leaving, and who's left there is not the people who you want to be having the conversations with, and a lot of them fighting with those people who you don't want to have conversations with, and so it's yeah. been, it's been a tougher experience for me for social media, and and that's why I worry about these ideas like. Uh, self-control where um, I wonder if we have if we have an inflated idea of our self-control but we're constantly being bombarded with negative messages uh, wrong ideas and they still sort of seep in they still mm-hmm. sort of get into the machine a little too much that we've re-elevated these crazy ideas because 
we've created a more level platform for some of these sort of to sit on and not even necessarily consciously, but some consciously. Is that a wild idea? No, I, I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't fully, fully see the connection with self-control here, but, uh, but I, I get what you're saying in, in the sense that, um, right now our informational ecosystem is being populated with voices and opinions that have long been suppressed or not never given the light of day because maybe they didn't need to be given the light of day. And now um, we're seeing more fringe voices being elevated to the mainstream. Now, we can't we can't divorce that from what's going on politically in the world. So I think it's not only social media's fault. I, I think there are uh, political movements, you know, that have happened in the past, you know, few years um, that have uh, elevated some of those fringe voices that shouldn't have been elevated and normalized them. And that's why you're seeing them out in social media, uh, because they, they're some way legitimized. Um, mm -hmm. but now they're in the, the ecosystem and then they start influencing, they start seeping into people's own ideas of what is right and what is wrong, what is moral, what is immoral. Um, and then, you know, people's own like, uh, moral compass, is changed mm -hmm. and maybe that's how it can affect self-control so you know we think of self-control in some ways as uh, one way you can break down self-control is um you can think you break it down to three elements you've got a, a goal that you need to meet you need to have a way to monitor um the current state of the environment to see if it's aligned with your goals or if it's mismatched with your goals. And if it is mismatched you then need let's say kind of the motor of control that effectuates change Okay, now, but the starting point of control is having a goal. Mm -hmm. Okay, what is your set point? What do you want to do? Um, and I think what could happen with, with, with social media is it change, it might change your goals. It might change what you think is acceptable. So maybe you might have had a goal, let's say, four or five years ago of, well, you know, I, you know, uh, maybe some sort of egalitarian goal or a goal of, of promoting diversity or something like this. Um, and now, because of all these kind of fringe voices that are kind of you know, racist, it seems like to me, maybe you're less likely to have those goals. And I'm, I'm just using this as one example. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's the same thing with, um, well, here's another example that may be less controversial, um, or at least more controversial, I don't know. Uh, you know, the sexualization of, uh, you know, sexualized imagery has increased, I believe, uh, mm -hmm. you know, as I've gotten older, I see more and more skin and more, more sexual attitudes are increasingly increasingly permissive um, and that might be a good thing or a bad thing depending on your, your your moral frame but regardless it affects how people themselves set goals for the kinds of attitudes uh, behaviors they want to engage in sexually mm -hmm. right so now the norms have changed then people's goals have changed so uh, just like you know our, our so our political environment can, you know it can, it can change the norms and it can change our goals and it changes what we decide we want to control and what we don't what we decide not to control so in that way, I see the connection. Yeah, I think that's kind of what I'm trying to, to say. And maybe self-control isn't the exact engine of that, in that we all believe that we have enough self-control that if all these things are out in the universe, we're going to be able to avoid them. But sometimes I think we may be influenced by the outside sources more than we believe that we are. Oh, okay. So yeah, I mean, they're 100%. I mean, um, the biggest predictor of whether you're going to, we have data on this and, and other people do as well, not just us. The biggest predictor of whether you're, you are going to meet your own self-set goals um, is not self-control. That is not mm -hmm. the biggest predictor. Um, the, big, the biggest predictor is whether you encounter a desire that conflicts with that goal. Or in other words, if you, if you, if you encounter a temptation. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you encounter a temptation, there is a decent chance that you might, you know, not, you might succumb to that temptation and you might actually, you know, engage in behaviors that directly contradict your own goals. So being exposed to, so, you know, um, if you want to, the, the best way to control your behaviors is to manufacture or create or, uh, you know, environments where you're less likely to encounter temptations. That is how, that's the best way to manage, you know, uh, your goals is to kind of, so for example, um, uh, here's a simple example. Let's say you're trying to manage your food intake. You're trying to, you're trying to go on a diet. Um, you could, you'll do better at meeting, uh, at meeting your dieting goal if uh, you avoid driving by or walking by on your way home from work, the bakery or the poutine shop or whatever it is that you're, whatever it is you're, your food of, that really gets you. If you avoid those, you're less likely to see them and less likely to want to buy them or not have not have those foods at home. Um, so to the extent that social media or you know offers things that are tempting, mm-hmm. offers things that contravene with your goals, then yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a net negative uh, for you meeting your goals. Well, not even just social media, but it's all media now. We just have more media than ever before. We're in constant exposure to temptation whether it's diet or sex uh definitely those two more than anything i think is is uh you know the want to consume and purchase and everything i think we're more exposed to that than ever before yep that's Uh, right actually another one and this relates to my an earlier point uh and there's there's actually empirical research on this a, a, a really big temptation for people is social media itself yeah. Like people find it incredibly hard to resist the notification on their phone uh, or their beep that something is going on and they just can't help but, but, but not look at it. And people set goals for, the, for themselves not, not to do those things and they just can't help it. I can't. Um, yeah. I have zero resistance to that. If my phone goes off, I, uh, like it's off right now. Because if I had it on, if I heard it beep, I'd have to know what the notification was. And I also have to, I have no ability to stop myself from looking at what that notification is. I need to know what it is. It's, I have no, I have no self-control on that. Uh, right. So, I mean, one, one simple fix there is turn off your notifications, period, mm-hmm. uh, for all social media. So I don't have notifications on. The only, the only notifications I have on my phone are text messages, typically from my wife. Um, and uh, that's it. Yeah. Um, I don't want to have any other notifications. Even though I have, I get lots of messages. I just don't want to have that thing vibrating in my pocket, telling me, uh, taking me away from other things. So I think a, a big source of conflict for a lot of, for people now is, you know, what is vying for their attention? Mm-hmm. People, people, I, I think feel out of control with their attention. They want to be, uh, especially if you have, if your work is even a little bit self-directed, um, where no one's you know, watching over you, uh, as you're doing your work, you're like, the temptations are all right on your desktop. Yeah. Um, and uh, it could get it could be really really hard to get work done, um, or do you know people have like, people want to read books? People don't read books anymore, and I think part of that is because there's so many other things that they're they're competing with their time. Um, so it, you know attention is, is is you know we need attention to regulate our attention. You know like it's it's a, it's you need control there, and it's very very hard. Okay, um, so then what would be your one per- piece of advice you would give to somebody trying to improve their self-control? Create an uh, environment? Yeah, again, other than, other than I don't know, good luck to you. Um, I think it would be, I mean, we might wanna think about it a little bit differently. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So in like, this is getting a bit jargony here. Um, but in psychology, we use uh, we have two terms. We've got the word we have we've got the word self control, and the way I think of self control is I think of that as willpower, as kind of this mm-hmm. muscular pushing away of thoughts, of emotions, and behaviors. It's kind of like you know literally controlling yourself. Um, I see the you know I, you know poutine is in front of me. I'm like I should not. <laughs> eat that food and you like are kind of grabbing your hand away from the from the poutine that would be self-control um now another, there's another term called self-regulation self-regulation is a broader term essentially uh, uh, referring to any kinds of actions behavior strategies that might help you meet your goals okay um that the things that go into self-regulation uh, well, include self-control. Self-control is one self-regulation strategy, but you've got various other ones. Um, so, for example, you've got goal setting. Um, you've got planning. You've got um, uh, situation selection. You know, again, managing your situation. What, what's mm-hmm. what's in your pantry? What's in your fridge? Um, if we're talking about food kinds of goals. Um, You've got like, what are you paying attention to in your environment? We've got like reframing the, 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 the stimuli that you see in your eyes. We have lots of different things you can see. So if I had one piece of advice, it would be to think about self-regulation more broadly and to ask yourself what you can do to reduce the number of temptations that you might encounter. So think about your goals and then think about what are those things that conflict with those goals? What are the things that are taking you away from those goals? You can't think of all of them, but you can think of a few. So if you're a smoker, I know a lot of people have an association with smoking and drinking. Um, or there's a, there's a very specific, you know, place association with smoking too. So, you know, um, maybe don't go to the bar with, you, with your buddies because mm-hmm. um, they might be likely to offer you cigarettes or you might see them smoking and be tempted. So what can you do to re- reduce the temptations that you know are going to kind of set you off? So so you want to, in other words, what you want to do is avoid using self-control. The trick to good, the, 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 the trick to meeting your goals is not having to use self-control because mm-hmm. self-control is bound to fail. It's more likely to fail. Especially in those that have really poor self-control. Uh, yeah, yeah, actually, you know what? It turns out that those people who have those people who have the highest self-control, you know, use it the least. If hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. They are actually managing their situation such they don't need to use self-control at all. And it's the people who do have a really, really tough time who rely on self-control. So you can think of self-control as an emergency as the emergency break. Okay. You don't want to use your emergency break. That means you're about to have an accident. Yeah. Okay. You want to use your regular break and you can think of self-regulation as, as, as things that happen well before you're in an emergency. Self-control is when the poutine is right in front of you. It's, <laughs> a, it's an emergency now, man. Um, whereas if I didn't even have the poutine in front of me, I'm not, I'm in, I'm in no risk of, of actually eating it. I am going to go eat some poutine with bacon after this interview, man, because you keep talking <laughs> about poutine, dude. Um, is there, is there a sense of excitement for some when it comes to self-control and temptation? May they be using that for excitement? Um, I'm, what do you mean by that? Excitement in, in, in what? Like people might put themselves in a situation where they're trying to test their self-control for the sort of adventure of it. Hmm. Is that a possibility? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I never really considered that. So kind of like you have people who jump out of airplanes 
um, you know, someone's on a, someone who's on a diet and they've got mm-hmm. again the poutine in front of them. Yeah. Um, can they? Yeah. So you know, adventure sport. Uh, I'm not sure. I've never heard of that before. I suppose it's one you you could do it. But especially um, when it comes to something like sex, wouldn't that mm-hmm. be part of the thing? Uh, you know, the temptation is part of the you know the the trying in order to resist is part of the enjoyment of something that might seem bad to you. Mm-hmm. Is that a possibility? Yeah, I man, I suppose it's a possibility. So, so someone who's like, really, you know, trying to, you know, you, you think of people who are like, you know, you know, sex addicts, quote unquote, sex addicts. I don't mm-hmm. know if it's actually a real thing. Um, uh, but there's people who really like sex more than, you know, there's a variability in the degree to which people like sex. And some people like it more than others. Um, and let's say you're trying to reduce the amount of sex you have. Um, is it exciting to try to see if you can, I suppose it would be exciting, but if your goal is to not have sex, you know, uh, having temptation in front of you is going to, is, is going to lead, you're more likely to fail. I suppose mm-hmm. it's exciting, um, but it depends on what you're after. Are you after the excitement of seeing how much you can stop it or after, or after, or, 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 or are you after, you know, meeting your goal of having less sex? If you're, if it's at the latter, then don't, don't tempt yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the, the biggest predictor of whether you're going to meet your goals or not is whether you're tempted or not. If your goal is to have fun and be, and, and be excited, then sure do that but then realizing you're you know you're sacrificing your don't have sex goal for the excitement goal for the excitement goal yeah Yeah. Yeah. i just wonder with those people who have um some of those stranger proclivities like they like to be humiliated and those types of things they like to feel bad they like when they fail at things or at least they're really good in other portions of their life but they find in something else they find joy in that there's also those types that enjoy mm-hmm. uh feeding others mm-hmm. as part yeah. of that i'm wondering yeah, if self-control I mean, I suppose it's possible. has something to do with that. Like, you know there's like there are infinite ways to be human yeah um so i suppose but again what it, but, but then what it comes down to is that you have uh, you can think of you know we all have multiple goals in our lives mm-hmm. okay um, we are multi-goal organisms, and not all organisms are like this. Some goal, some organisms are just like eat, and that's it, and they 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 are asexual, reproduce that way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we have multiple goals, and um, I suppose the question is, what's your bigger goal? The, you know, is the goal to not have sex, not eat the food, or is the goal to kind of punish yourself? Mm-hmm. It seems like there's some enjoyment you get out of like you know um, depriving yourself of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, or of, of putting yourself in, in dangerous, you know, uh, situations. Um, so I guess the, the question is, what what goal is more salient? If you're go, you know, if at any one point you're again kind of live dangerous, uh, humiliate yourself goal is salient, then that could be one way of doing it. Um, but uh, again, but again, you're then sacrificing the other goal. So I think it really depends. You're juggling d- different goals here, but I suppose it's you know uh, I suppose people might do that. So yeah. you know you can, I guess you can imagine a, someone who's trying to quit smoking and they they try on purpose to have lots of cigarettes around them mm-hmm. and for the for the thrill of resisting. For the res- thrill of uh, resistance. Yeah, um, they might get that thrill, but they might be disappointed to discover that eventually they're going to smoke cigarettes. Well, and they probably I don't think it would be a very long amount of time either. I think they would lose fairly quickly. Um, yeah, that's right. That's right. And actually, going back to that example, there was actually a study exactly on this question where, you know, they, they, the, the, these researchers, I think they were out of Chicago, um, they uh, asked people whether they could resist, uh, whether they could resist 
you know, smokers or, or, or ex-smokers uh, or people trying to quit smoking, could they resist uh, smoking a cigarette if one is in their hand? And a mm. lot of people say, yes, oh yeah, no problem, I could do it. Um, and then when they have the cigarette in their hand, more often than not, they're smoking the cigarette. Yeah. Um, so that kind of goes to your point of people don't really understand how powerful um, the, the emotions are in the situation. Uh, the, you know, the, 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 the pull of the cigarette in, that, in this case. So it might be thrilling for some people, but they'll soon discover, yeah, they, it's, it's, the thrill doesn't last very long because they're within a few minutes or a few seconds of smoking. So let's go way to the other end. How does somebody then do something like be a monk and meditate all day? And is it because those situations are set up that most temptation is removed? Or are they just better at setting a goal where my goal is clarity, my goal is eternal salvation? They're just more focused on that goal. Is is, is that the, do they have that ability? Is that why they're able to do that type of a life? Yeah, that's a really interesting question as well. Um, and I think it's more, I, in my opinion, to be more of the latter. Mm-hmm. Um, and this also relates back, goes back to the, your question about religion. Right. So with meditation, I think, you know, a lot of Buddhist traditions are actually secularized now. There's not even mm-hmm. necessarily deities there or gods there. Um, although in, in, in traditional Buddhist traditions, of course, there are gods, especially Tibetan Buddhist tra- traditions. Um, but nonetheless, you still have a religious community. You have norms. Um, so if you're in a monastery, you everyone's waking up at that same time mm-hmm. and everyone's meditating and sitting quietly. So you see other people doing it. So that helps you do it. Um, that's that that would be number one. Um, but I think ultimately it's, you know, the people who are going to do that, um, it's really important to them that they maybe have the, you know, they, uh, there's some goal in mind that's really, really powerful for them. I don't think the goal there is to like the thrill of denial. I think the goal there is they think by engaging in this kind of these little denials, um, they're gonna have yeah greater clarity, more focus, uh, maybe greater appreciation for the connectedness of humanity, uh, or even just the ability to 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 to, 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 to focus on something. Um, and I think when they have that goal, it's such a strong, strong goal, and then it's being supported by a community, mm-hmm. by standards. Um, uh, then it's kind of I don't want to say it's easy to do. It's not easy at all. It's incredibly hard to do, um, but you know, uh, they can do it. And also you're right. You're right as well. You know, those temptations aren't there to the same extent, although not necessarily. I mean, uh, with meditation, it's, um, the biggest temptation is, is, is thinking, mm-hmm. right? Cause what you're trying to do when you're meditating is, is, to, is, uh, to stop the, the, that chatter that's going on in your mind. You're trying to kind of quiet down your mind and you're actually trying to, um, I don't want to. I don't want to say you're not trying to think, but you're trying to like be present in the moment and follow what you're, where you are, and that means not being elsewhere with your mind. And that means kind of noticing when your mind is going offline and bringing it back to the present. And that's we're so used to doing that with our minds that it becomes difficult to do that. So you have thinking temptations everywhere. Mm-hmm. So those temptations aren't gone, but there are other temptations that are gone, like. Um, you know, maybe some some eating temptations, some smoking temptations, some other kinds of temptations you might have, but the biggest one is is thinking, and that's there. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, I think you know, I think the main again, the, the biggest driver there is they have a goal, a really really strong goal that they identify with, and they want to bring about. And that, you know, maybe to, to answer one of your earlier questions again with another answer is, 
a good way to, to improve your self-control is you get to start from the beginning, set a goal. Mm-hmm. And and we know a lot about setting goals. Um, so uh, when you set a goal, that goal has got to be specific. It's got to be concrete. It's got to be um, challenging, yet not too difficult. Otherwise, you get uh, you know uh, demotivated. Um, it also has to have a time horizon. Mm-hmm. So it can't just be like okay, a, a bad goal would be, um, oh, I want to lose weight. Yeah. That's like a very fuzzy goal. No. The goal has got to be, I want to lose seven pounds within, you know, uh, three months. Um, and then even further than that, I'm going to restrict my calories to, for example, 1,500 calories a day uh, for, you know, six out of seven days a week or blah, blah, blah. So setting goals, that's how you start. And with meditators, people go on retreats, they've got that really goal of, that really strong goal of like, you know, quieting their mind, maybe enlightenment or something of that nature. Yeah. Okay, uh, we're getting close on time, so I got two quick questions for you. Um, first one is the ability commit to commit intrinsically tied to self control. So the ability to intrinsically commit to what? Commit to anything. Commit to purchasing a home. Commit to a relationship. Commit to a job. Is that intrinsically tied to self control, or is that a separate part of the human mind? Um. I mean, I think the way you've just described commit, I would say it is intr- intrinsically tied. So again, um, uh, we need goals to, mm-hmm. to, to engage in self-regulation and self-control. Um, and if we're not really sure about our goal, if we're not committed to our goal, if we don't identify with our goal, well, then it's easy not to do it. So I'm like, yeah, I kind of want to lose weight. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure. Well, you know, the poutine shows up. You're like, yeah, you know what? I don't really have that goal anymore. Right. Um, so you have to commit to the goal, but now there are different ways of committing to the goal. Okay. So you can commit to a goal, um, for let's say autonomous reasons. You could do it for, you know, um, self-identified reasons, uh, reasons that are like, I'm doing this cause I love it. It's, it's coming from me. Um, I want to lose weight, uh, because I want to be healthy. Or you know, a really good way, of, a really good you know way to commit to losing weight is like I really love healthy food and I want to eat more healthy food and I want to be healthy. Um, a be- one that's less good is well, my doctor told me I got to do this and I don't really feel like it, but I got to do it. Well, guess what? You might do it for a little bit, but then when push comes to shove, you're like, oh, I didn't really like that goal to begin with. Um, so that would be called an extrinsic goal, a goal mm-hmm. that kind of, yeah, you want to do it, but it's coming from outside. Um, those are going to be more weekly held goals and you're, you'll, you'll find yourself um, when you're tired, when you're stressed, when you're drunk, um, less, less able to do it or less willing to do it. Um, so, you know, related to your goals in an intrinsic way, uh, an autonomous way uh, is more powerful, more long lasting. But it's hard. It's hard because then it begs the question, how do I turn a uh, in, uh, what I, I use the terms um, want to goals and have to goals mm-hmm. have to be kind of from the outside. A goal that's a have to um, is harder to maintain. But then the question is, if I've got a have to goal, how do I make it a want to want goal, to. which we know are healthier? And, and, and I don't know how to do that. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think we need more research to figure that out. Perfect. Um, one last question. And I call this uh, uh, read, watch, and listen. What is something you would recommend the people read, something you recommend that they watch, and something you recommend they listen to? And this could be about anything unrelated to what we just talked about? Anything. Anything. 
Anything. Okay, Anything. that's kind Do of it. fun. So I got. Yep. I'll, I'll have to think about this. Um, okay, so read. Um, I read a power. I read a book. Uh, a very very powerful book uh, over the summer. It's called Galileo's Middle Finger. It's uh, written by a scholar named uh, Alice Dreger, and it uh, details. It's a political book, um, and it details how um, the tale of truth seekers, uh, scientists and scholars who are trying to tell their version of the truth. Um, and how sometimes truth and justice collide and what happens when um, when those two things collide and when there are political forces that now uh, want to deny your version of the truth. Um, and it gets into some, some really, really interesting controversial topics in science. So that was a, a, one of my favorite books that I've read in the past few years. Love that. Um, what was it? it was a read? Watch and listen. Read, watch and listen. Um, so watch. Actually, I watch and listen. I think are going to be related. Um, and again, I'm just going in anything here. Yeah, anyway. uh, I just uh, I just watched uh, on Saturday uh, a movie, uh, Star Is Born, mm, uh, directed nice. by Bradley Cooper, starring Lady Gaga. And I should say, I I like Bradley Cooper because he was in the he was in Hungover, and I thought it was mm -hmm. a hilarious movie. But he directed this movie and acted. Um, uh, but I don't. I know nothing about Lady Gaga other than something about a meat meat dress of some sort. <laughs> I'm not dress, a fan yeah. of hers, but I was so incredibly moved by this movie. I mean, I was crying in this wow. movie, um, and I'm not a crier, yeah. with, you know, typically uh, in, in movies. And I just was so incredibly moved uh, by the story, but also by the music. Um, so that then brings up, you know, number number three, listen. listen. Yeah. Um, so Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper sing this song called Shallow. Mm -hmm. uh, it's on the uh, on it's on the uh, a Star Is Born soundtrack, and I was just listening to it before yeah. we started this interview. And again, it's a really incredibly moving song. It is a great tune. Um, yeah, it just makes me so. I, I'm someone. I, apparently, not everyone feels this, but I'm um, music really moves me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I get goosebumps uh, like routinely when certain songs kind of evoke certain feelings in me, and that song will do it every single time. It just it just gets me in a, a deep down emotional place. Wow. Do you have a Desert Island album? A Desert Isle, uh, Island album. Uh, I mean, I have, a, I have a Desert Island. Uh, what? So that's a first step. Uh, actually, it wouldn't be so much of a Desert Island. It's an island. That, and there are no cars on it. Uh, it's off the coast of uh, Lombok in Indonesia. It's called uh, Gili Air. It's this beautiful, incredible island. Uh, volcanoes, white sand, wow. uh, incredible island. An album. Um, I have to think about. It. I mean, it depends on when you you know when what what phase of my life. Um, probably when my in my uh, early twenties, it would have been uh, Nirvana. Never mind, was a huge nice. Nirvana yeah. fan, and that was you know when I'll never forget you know the day that I found out he died. Um, I don't remember exactly where I was. That was uh, you know Kurt Cobain uh, killed yeah, himself. Absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. So that was a big one. But where, I you where know, were you when he died? I yeah, and then, that was super sad. But it, I you know. I don't listen to Nirvana as much yeah. uh, anymore. Um, Where were you when he died? I was watching a Montreal Expo's uh, home opener wow. uh, in 1994. Uh, but I discovered it. I didn't discover it in the game, but that was, that was you know when it happened. And then I came home and someone told me uh, about it. So that was you know that was uh, you know. And then I just spent the next like you know three days just listening to his music, reading all I could about Kurt Cobain. I mean, yeah. I knew a lot about him already to begin with. Um, but I want to call that one of my favorite albums. Um, you know, I'm I've gone into a reggae kick yeah. uh, the past few years, and I love Jamaica. I try to visit there as often as I can. Um, 
Again, I you know there's so much. I love music. Loving there's fan? too many, too many. Albums. I'll pick one album. You know, uh, Toots and the Maytals got this nice. great album called Fun, uh, Funky Kingston. Yeah. And every single track on that uh, is a winner, and it's upbeat, happy music. It's not really serious. You know, uh, I don't get the shivers listening to that music, but I listen to that stuff. Yeah. I just want to dance and have a good time, and, you, and and it puts me in a good place. You ever listen to Barrington Levy? Oh yeah. Yeah, sure. I like uh, him a lot. Oh, I love Barry and Rebel. Yeah, love He's got the Black Roses. Yeah, uh, Black Roses. My, one of my favorite the tunes. And Murderers, another great yeah. tune. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a big That's fan. good stuff. All right. Well, I will give one more listen rec- recommendation. Your podcast is definitely worth giving a listen to. So I'll leave that on the end so people can check that out. They can get that on. It's on iTunes. I've, I've got to subscribe to my iTunes. But you can get it on everything else as well. Uh, yeah, you can get it anywhere. Uh, so it's Two Psychologists, Four Beers. Um, I believe it's something like... Uh, fourbeers.fireside.fm um, but you can find on any uh, podcast yeah. uh, reader anywhere perfect well Michael once again thank you so much for being so generous with your time uh, it was great to speak to you so, uh, thank you very much uh, once again and uh, we'll end it there thank you yeah thank you for having me